from Local 12 Sports. It's the Skinny Podcast. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly Pope edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor with Rick McCrory. Each and every week, we meet to talk about sports topics of local interest, occasionally a national topic or two. We've got a gambling segment usually in a portion of the podcast where you can ask me a question on any topic. It doesn't have to be sports. Just go to the X-verse, hit up the hashtag, ask Skinny anything. As always, it's presented by Blake, the attorney, Maislin. Rick, it was a whirlwind trip for me to Jacksonville with very, very little sleep. I did get a good night's sleep leading into this podcast, so I feel better. You're on the road covering NKU at Illinois State, which is in, uh, is that normal, Illinois? Is that right? Normal. Normal. Yep, that's right. Where is it? I don't even know where normal Illinois is. Uh, just the usual spot that you would look for normal Illinois, I guess. I don't, I'm not a geography guy. You know, but it's next to Bloomington, Illinois, if that helps you. I don't really know. There we go. Sure. Middle-ish of the state, Didn't help I think. All, but thank you. I have no idea where I'm at. I'm at a Marriott. It doesn't matter. I'm going to watch basketball for one night and get out of here. Simple enough. All right. Well, Skinny, uh, the Bengals beat the Jaguars 34-31 in overtime on Monday Night Football in Jacksonville. It was the Bengals' first road win on Monday Night Football on the road since 1990 when they beat the Cleveland Browns. And backup quarterback Jake Browning, our guy, mine and yours, was incredible as he completed 32 of 37 passes for 350 yards, a touchdown, no interceptions. He also rushed for a touchdown. Uh, all right, Skitty, this is this is my time to eat my crow. Are the Bengals, Duke Tobin, and the like vindicated for choosing to stick with Jake Browning as their backup quarterback after seeing that performance on Monday night? Uh, I think the coaching staff probably is because they're the ones that that really um, felt like they had invested time in him and vice versa, that he invested time in them and taking the time each and every week knowing he wasn't going to play and sometimes just being the practice squad guy preparing himself to play, um, asking good questions, helping the starter get ready, helping the backup I talked about, I wrote a story, you know, right before he started in the Rams game and, and talking to T Higgins, you know, the, the wide receivers trusted Jake a lot of times when Jake wasn't even dressed for games to come over and say, what are you seeing? Um, and some of that was, you know, Joe's looking at the iPad and he's going through his own process. So you're trying to pick somebody else's brain, but they really trusted Jake. And, and T Higgins talked back then about how much faith he had in Jake and Jamar after the game. And this was after the game on, on Monday, he had, I thought the quote of the day where he said he's QB one material. Now that may be a big jump because we've seen, We've seen Matt Castle get paid off of a great performance. Um, we saw Matt Flynn up in Green Bay once start a final game and throw six touchdowns or whatever the hell it was, and he got paid. So th- these these occurrences do happen with backup quarterbacks where they just pop for a game. It is, as we know, all about consistency. But I do think it proved that, you know, for all those that were, go find a big backup quarterback, they believed in the guy, and they are vindicated. Uh, because, honestly, he played okay in the Pittsburgh game. The interception was terrible. It was a terrible read. He said as soon as he threw it, he knew it. He admitted it. But I think that was just – he hadn't seen some of that stuff before. It's his first live game. He was much better in this game on third downs where he really struggled in the Pittsburgh game on third downs because guess what? He's kind of seen some of this stuff now. And I think he's a guy that does process very well. Um, look, nobody could have expected that. I mean, we're talking 32 of 37, Rick, with a Tyler Boyd drop. And it wasn't an easy catch, but it's a catch that Tyler Boyd probably should make out in space. A clear Jamar Chase drop you know, down by the goal line and he was vindicated on the next play or redeemed himself on the next play by making a really nice catch down low to get a key first down. And then another one where Browning scrambled out to his right, bought some time, was trying to let a play develop. Nothing came open. He threw it away. That's three of the five incompletions out of 37 attempts. That's incredible to me. 
yeah, I, he was fun to watch. I mean, put simply, I was as critical, not really of him necessarily, but just of the idea of like, yeah, we should still expect the Bengals to keep going forward with just Jake Browning guy who in preseason, everyone was telling us was dog. I mean, just absolute, you know what? So I, I it was hard for me to uh, rectify all that in my mind and be like, yeah, I'm still supposed to get excited about this guy. But he won me over with that performance, Skitty. I mean, that's as good as you can step in and be, whether you're the starter, backup, or whoever. That was almost every bit as good as having Joe Burrow out there, quite honestly, in that game. He was fantastic. You, 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 there's nothing you can take away from him after that performance. And the best part was of it all was, Skinny, you get through those the first couple of drives where he's 8 for 8, and he hasn't thrown a pass farther than 4 yards yet, and you're going... I mean, come on, turn this guy loose. If he's the quarterback, let him be the quarterback and play. As soon as they did it, man, the game plan was great. They had the offense flow, and he looked great. He looked comfortable within it. I mean, really just kudos to the, the entire staff and Jake Browning because it seemed like everyone was completely on the same page, and they had the, had the perfect game plan for this matchup. Uh, I, I asked this question on Twitter, Skitty. I'm sure I know your answer, but I want to get it. What was more improbable, the Jake Browning game or the Ryan Finley Monday night football game back in 2020 when he beat the Steelers. Believe it or not, I'm going to say the Jake Browning game because it wasn't like Ryan Finley outside of that read option run did anything special, right? It really wasn't very a special performance. The read option run was something that Zach Taylor actually called on the sideline because he'd seen what they were doing and, and they, they didn't draw it up. They had it in, but they really, it wasn't something they were going to go to until they really saw they had a chance to pop it. And so the read option run was a special play, but no, this performance by far. And to your point about preseason, um, he was very inconsistent, and there's no question there was times he did look bad. But as, as camp went along, I thought he did get better, and I think I said that. And if you remember that last preseason game against Atlanta, he was really sharp in that game. Now, again, you're playing really deep backups against really deep backups who weren't exactly. going to make Atlanta's roster either. So that had to be thrown into the mix, but he was sharp nonetheless. And so that was a little bit of a positive step for him towards the end of camp. Um, but yeah, nobody in the right mind. I mean, Rick, he it was actually, the, that's the fifth highest completion percentage in a game in Bengals history. Funny part is, believe it or not, Joe Burrow was number four on that list in the Frisco game. So they've had two of their top five, as goofy as it sounds, in this year of all years. But number five in Bengals team history for anybody attempting over 20 passes in a game, that's absurd. Yeah, well, it was fun to see all the stats coming out after the game of like, here's the list of quarterbacks this year have completed 80% of their passes and thrown for over 300 and whatever yards. And it was like Jake Browning. And that was it. You know, I mean, just so many stats like that, where it was such a standout performance. It, it really was incredible. Um, Skinny, why was that game so enjoyable to watch? What, what, I mean, I, I loved it. I think every watching Twitter, it seemed like all the fans loved it. And the, the energy coming out of that game has been a lot of fun from Bengals fans. Why did people have so much fun watching that game? I think the back and forth aspect of it, so many different storylines. Trust me, as somebody that has to write a running game story that I try to publish like literally as soon as the game ends, um, when they kick the field goal to go up, I'm like, C.J. Beathard's not going to drive him down the field. I can write my lead, my first four graphs, and I'll plug in the numbers as I go. And I'm doing that, and there's only two of us left in the press box. Everybody else, it's a just to get people behind the scenes, it's about a 15-minute walk from the press box to the Bengals' locker room at that stadium. It's a weird setup. So a lot of people who don't write running gamers went down early to get themselves set up. So it was literally Ben Baby and I were the last two in the press box. He was writing kind of an analysis piece very quickly. I've got my head down just plugging in numbers, and I'm really not paying attention. I'm like, okay, th- you know, they'll get to stop here at some point, and this will end it. I'm good. I looked up and go, Ben, how the hell did they just get to the Bengals 40? He goes, because they can't stop anybody. <laughs> and so I had to rewrite that. Here comes a loss. And then, nope, okay, now we go to overtime. And I had to rewrite it into overtime. So – 
to me, I think it was just the whole back and forth aspect and nature of that game. Um, I, I think, you know, the Bengals still are a playoff caliber team, whether they make the playoffs or not in this wacky year. Jacksonville is a playoff caliber team. So, yeah, I think you had that going for you, two teams who are pretty good teams, and Jacksonville probably on paper is better. Um, and, again, just the the nature of if you're a Bengals fan, this was kind of the last gasp if you wanted to stay in the playoff race. You had to win this game, not mathematically, but for realistic sake, you had to win this game to stay in. So the fact that they pulled out the win, I think, makes it more enjoyable for fans for sure. I want to touch on the playoff thing here in a second, but before we get to that, how sustainable – do you think Jake Browning's play was? And I mean, is there, is it sort of like, you know, we talk about young pitchers in baseball where you see a starter pitch really well, those first few outings and you're like, well, teams will catch up to him. They'll get the film on him. They'll see what he's doing well and, and hitters will adjust. And then he'll have his, you know, his struggles. Is it like that for a, a quarterback in football? Do you think teams will see what he's doing? What, what type of plays they're calling for him that he's successful with and the next few games will get tougher or how does this play out going forward for Jake Browning? Yeah, I, I do and I don't. There's certainly obviously more film on him. So to your point, you kind of know what he is. At the same time, the Bengals offense is kind of the Bengals offense. It is, hey, hey take take the pass where the progression takes you. Um, and that's kind of like in basketball, emotion offense. You can't really scout emotion offense, right? You can figure out maybe some ways to try to defend it and some things you can do, but it's unscoutable because there's no set pattern to it. Um, and so for the Bengals, they have some pet things they like to do, but it's literally take you where the progression goes. I think the thing that is a little different with Browning. And if you mix in what they did in the run game with Chase Brown adding some juice, I think taking some snaps off Joe Mixon, which added some juice for him too. And the fact that, you know, when Mixon has been in the backfields, primarily, you know, it's it's him. When it was Travion Williams or somebody else, you knew they were going to pass the ball and they were just in there as pass blockers. When Chase Brown came in, it kind of gave you a little mix. But the other thing, Rick, and I've talked about this because I think it's a tough play to defend in football. There was a lot of, not a lot, but there was about – I'd have to go back and look six to eight bootlegs. Would you say maybe more somewhere yeah. in that neighborhood? And, and that's something that Joe Burrow just doesn't do a whole lot. I mean, he's in the shotgun a ton. You're not bootlegging out of the shotgun. They got under center and ran some, some bootlegs. And I thought we're very effective with those. So I think that's something that is kind of unlocked a little bit in this offense too. That can be a positive. All right. So skinny are the playoffs in play for the Bengals. I mean, when you start looking at this and obviously, you know, the Jaguars were a team that was ahead of them and now they don't have Trevor Lawrence. The Steelers have a god-awful quarterback in Kenny Pickett. Uh, the Colts are, are struggling. The Browns are without their quarterback. I mean, the teams that are right ahead of them, a lot of those teams now are in a similar position or they're just not very good teams either. I mean, do, do you feel like the Bengals are legitimately back in the mix for the playoffs? I do. Now, they got some some leapfrogging to do, and they, they, they're going to be really up against it when it comes to you know conference record tiebreakers. But... Um, they have a chance to have the tiebreaker edge over the Colts with a win this week that would put both teams at seven and six. They have the head-to-head tiebreaker. They have the head-to-head tiebreaker with the Bills, which currently have six losses. Um, you, you have a chance, as goofy as it sounds, let's just say, and, and it sounds like Trevor Lawrence's injury isn't as severe as it looked when it happened, and I'm glad for him. That that looked like it was totally awful the way he reacted to it. it like did he not snapped look his ankle and knew it and was done. That, that was ugly. Mo Egger made the best point about this. Like, he said something about like he hoped he didn't make they didn't make him hobble all the way to the hospital. Did you see that shot of him walking up the ramp back to the locker rooms? It took like I don't know 20 minutes for him to get up there and he's limping like crazy and grimacing. Why could they not put him on a golf cart? What is going on? We wonder the same thing. I kept I kept asking because again, during the game, we're trying to do so much tweeting and looking, and you can't always watch the whole thing. And occasionally, we'll just blurt out to each other what we're seeing just because some people occasionally are looking, others aren't. 
And I was had my head down. I said, if they brought the card out, they're like, no, dude, he's, he's, they're walking him all the way. And I kind of looked up and I'm like, what, what, what are they doing here? That, that seems very criminal to me that they're making this kid walk off all the way to the locker room for goodness sakes. Very strange sight to see, but I mean, I guess maybe to, to your point, maybe it wasn't as bad as we all thought or it all looked. And uh, uh, maybe he knew that. And that's why he was trying to walk it off. I don't know. Yeah. Like, but back to the point. So it's funny they, the the one tiebreaker they don't hold would be the tiebreaker with Houston. And that could loom large when push comes to shove. Um, but if this Lawrence injury, let's say he plays through it and he's just not as effective for whatever reason. And they, maybe they, maybe this loss slaps them upside the head and they, start to tumble. I don't think they will. I think they are a good team, uh, to be honest with you. But maybe they sink to the wild card race. Well, guess what now? You, you got the tiebreaker with Jacksonville if it comes to it. If, if a Houston sur- surfaces to win that AFC South, where it looked like Jacksonville had complete control over after they beat Houston, maybe they don't. And then you can hand Pittsburgh a loss. You can hand Cleveland a loss. So you control still a lot of things in this playoff race. The one thing is when you get to the multiple tiebreaker scenario, that conference record really looms looms large. But to your point, you're facing a team. Now, Indy's hot at the moment, and God love them. They're playing great football. Um, but you're playing a backup quarterback in Gardner Minshew and a team that was supposed to be in a rebuilding year, and you're playing them in your building, all right? You got Minnesota, which is playing a backup quarterback. You got Pittsburgh, to your point about Kenny Pickett. They're, they weren't good with Kenny Pickett. I don't know what they're going to look like without Kenny Pickett. They sure didn't look very good on, on Sunday. Um, and then Cleveland's playing with, who knows at that point, They maybe they bring Bernie Kosar out of retirement. I mean, they brought Joe Flacco out of, out of the grave for goodness sake. So who knows where their quarterback situation. So down the stretch, you do have four winnable games, but we, we have to be honest with ourselves to say the Kansas city game will be very, very difficult. Um, but four and one down the stretch is, is, is a possibility. If you get to 10 and seven, there's no doubt in my mind, 10 and seven makes the playoffs and nine and eight could make it depending on the tiebreaker scenarios. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't feel very likely, but all of a sudden you start looking up. And the, the thing for me that makes it fun is all these other, I mean, who would you rather have as your, your quarterback, Kenny Pickett or Jake Browning right now? I mean, right. honestly, I'm fine with Jake Browning. Uh, Gardner Minshew or Jake Browning? I mean, Gardner Minshew's okay. He's doing all right, but I'm fine with Jake Browning compared to him. You know, I mean, these, these te- uh, the Browns, whatever, they're going to be running out there. Joe Flacco or whoever else is, I'd much rather have Jake Browning than whoever they're playing at quarterback. So you start looking at these couple of teams that are right above them. It's like, there's the potential for a couple of these teams to really tailspin down the final weeks. And, you know, you, you look at what the, the Bengals have. They host the Colts. They host the Vikings. They go to the Steelers. They go to the Chiefs. And then they host the Browns. So, I mean, certainly not an, an easy road down the stretch. But uh, you've got some games where you can make up some ground on a couple of these teams. And you got a couple of winnable games in there as well uh, that you feel pretty good about. So, I, I don't. I, I mean, it really, that performance on Monday Night Football, I wasn't expecting much out of it. But it was a fun game to watch, and it gave you just enough hope as a fan to be like, you know what? The, the rest of the season is absolutely worth watching here. And, Rick, to, to the point of everybody fussing about the whole backup quarterback situation, and again, I don't know, Jake Browning could crap his pants all the next few games for all I know. Um, but for a lot of these backup quarterbacks, they're all retreads who suck to begin with. That's why they're backups. I mean, Josh Dobbs is a cute story and all, but he's not sustainable. I mean, he can run around for a while play some backyard football because he doesn't know the offense. That's great, but he's a, he's been a deep backup for a reason. Gardner Minshew's kicked around this league. He's a fine backup, and it's cute what he's doing right now, and congratulations to him for, you know, you know having the, the ability to kind of bounce around and, and find some level of success, but he's bounced around this league. C.J. Beathard in, in Jacksonville's bounced around this league. It's the reason these guys have bounced around the league. Sometimes it is the unknown if a coaching staff believes that you go, we found something here. I, listen, you think that 
Does anybody really think outside of the 49ers coaching staff, and maybe they didn't even know what they had in Brock Purdy until they threw Brock Purdy in? I mean, seriously. There's no chance they knew what they had in a guy like that, especially a guy like Brock Purdy, who's – Physical attributes still aren't that impressive, even when he got it in and played. Right. So, yeah. All right. See anything else here on on the Bengals before we move on to college basketball and crosstown shootout talk? Yeah, the one the one thing I would say is that it's still it's, the win is great and it was a fun game to your point, but man, the defense still gives up a bunch of chunk plays, and I don't know how they fix that at this point. It feels like that's kind of the mo, unfortunately. Yeah, it just seems like that's who they are, and and you're going to kind of have to live with that for the time being. All right, Skitty, let's move on to college basketball. It is Crosstown Shootout Week, which is one of my favorite weeks of the year. Xavier is coming off of three straight losses at home, including by games to Oakland and most recently Delaware on Tuesday night. Cincinnati is 7-0, but its biggest win right now, according to Ken Palm, is over UIC, which is ranked 125 in Ken Palm. Xavier hovering somewhere like at 40 or 50 right now as we record this podcast. Um, Skinny, we'll start with this. What should the line be on this game? I've been going back and forth. I've been asking people. I recorded a UC-centric podcast with uh, Chuck Walter a couple nights ago, and Xavier was favored by one. I looked this morning as uh, Paul Fritzner and I were doing our Xavier podcast, and UC is now favored by one. Where would you set the line for this game, or where do you think it will be set? I'd I'd set it at UC minus four, And, and, and this is somebody who still is not overly high on this UC team yet. Xavier just doesn't guard and, and, you know, maybe they, maybe they find some magic because it's a rivalry game and maybe I'm setting it too high in a rivalry game. Maybe one is probably closer to it. Um, but, but to me well, don't you right think, now, I mean, if Vegas, uh, if Vegas did Xavier by four at home, don't you think the entire betting public would just bet on the home dog in that case in a game like this? Yeah, and sometimes, you know what, Vegas likes to bet too, believe it or not. And maybe that's what they're looking for is to, to rope you in again on a team that just doesn't guard anybody. Um, and, and, you know, again, UC has not even been close to tested, to your point. I mean, their best win over UIC for a while. I think their best net win, and we can do these metrics however we want, their best net win was over a winless Eastern Washington team for a, for a while. Um, you know, I know those that, that cover them and, and are around them um, and see them really like what they see. I, I'm going to withhold judgment till they really play somebody. I mean, I'll be frank, th- this win for UC would be good. I don't think it would be great. A loss to me would go, okay, now you lost to this team. I know it was on their floor, but um, listen, this, this is a team. I'm not sure you're going to find a team in the big 12 on the road that's worse than this Xavier team at the moment do you not right now not with the way Xavier's playing right now I mean like you said their inability to guard and then their just lack of toughness both from a physical standpoint getting guys scoring right through their chest just driving right through them and finishing through them and also from a mental standpoint of when things get hard and they face some adversity I mean they just folded down the stretch against Delaware I mean Sean Miller said he's like I've I've been in a lot of games where it feels like Delaware yeah, he, he said, I've, I've been in a lot of games where it feels like it's gotten away from my team and, you know, it's a, it's a tough loss. He's like, but this one felt different. It felt like our guys kind of just quit. And that's the thing. I mean, if Sean Miller was in his first or second year, you'd scratch your head and go, man, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. One of the things about Sean Miller teams is they're tough. I mean, they're tough. And, and that'll tell you because you know he's preaching it. You know he's drilling it. And they just aren't getting it. And that's, that becomes unfixable, to be quite frank. 
That, and that's the concern I have when you watch the Oakland game, and then especially now after the Delaware game, where it's happened twice in a matter of two weeks. Well, I mean, the Delaware game is like, there's no excuse. It's not, you can't be like, they were looking ahead to the shootout. They're coming off of back-to-back home losses, including a bye game home loss. There's no chance it's like a, a situation where they were looking past this game and weren't ready to play it. I, I just, I start wondering, is it in there? I mean, do you just, part of the problem is I don't think they have enough talent. So talent-wise, they don't have enough to overwhelm these mid-major teams when they start struggling against them. They don't have that ability to get back and make a big run. And then the other thing is, like you said, is it in there? If, if you're letting guys drive right through you and score chest-to-chest layups against you, at some point, it's a pride thing. I just don't know. I mean, th- these guys don't believe they they belong out there if you're letting that happen. And, and you're right. That's that's a tough thing to fix. Um, Skinny, as, as it relates to this year's game between Cincinnati and Xavier, who do you see being the MVP of this game? Who's who's going to be the standout here? I'm going to go, believe it or not, I'm going to go Victor Locken because I just don't know how, I, I, listen, I I don't know how they guard him. I, I honestly don't know how they guard him. And I'm not a huge fan of his, to be quite frank, but I don't know how they guard him. I'm with you on that, especially with the way he's been playing. He's obviously shooting the ball well from three. I don't know how much of a factor that is in this game, but Victor is skilled and he doesn't necessarily like to post you up as much inside. He really likes to kind of catch facing the basket and drive you in and use his skill a little bit more. And when you watch what Trey Townsend did for Oakland and uh, Jair Davis from Delaware, their forward who scored 19 points, that's exactly how they scored against Xavier's front court, which is driving right through them and uh, using some athleticism and size to finish I mean, it feels like this could be a huge game for Victor Locke. And if, I, if I'm Xavier, I'm coming up with some type of, I don't know if it's a double team or what, but you're trying to get the ball out of his hands as much as possible because I don't know if one-on-one you can guard him. And I, and I, I like to say you can go at him because he does foul. He's extremely foul prone. Um, go at him and attack him and, and get him in foul trouble and get him off the floor. Who does that for Xavier? Nobody. No way. I mean, and that's the thing. Like Desmond Claude, you know, you're you're hoping he'd be their their go-to scorer coming into this year. And he's shown some flashes. He's clearly one of their best players, but as a consistent go-to option, he hasn't blossomed into that yet. He's not quite ready. And his inability to make any outside shots right now. I mean, he's clanking some really ugly looking three-point shots. It really is allowing defenses to constrict what they're doing, cut off driving lanes and make it tougher for him to get in the lane and make plays. And so he's been, I wouldn't say rendered useless, but certainly his effectiveness has been diminished because of the way teams are able to guard him and and the fact that he's not getting a lot of help from other places. So, yeah, I mean, that might have been the guy I would have pointed to originally had you asked me at the beginning of the season. But at this point, I don't even know that he has a big advantage against UC, especially when UC has a, a defensive stopper in John Newman that they can put on him at that same position. Yeah, I, I think it's a tough matchup for for UC. Again, the only thing that I think the saving grace is atmosphere, rivals um, on Xavier's home court, and you would say that matters unless until they get beat by Oakland and Delaware. Again, the intensity level has to be ratcheted up. You can imagine it's going to be ratcheted up just because of it. I think that's the only saving grace for Xavier or those things. But when you put up, you know, matchup versus matchup, talent level versus talent level, and at the moment, um, ability to do things. That's why I get UC to me. They're a four point favorite in this game. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the one you mentioned saving grace for Xavier. I agree with that. And the one thing you do have to point to is the Houston game, that performance, that's enough to be in the shootout. I mean, you can win the shootout with the way you played against Houston. I think that Houston was the top team in the country by Ken Palm. They're ranked number six overall in the AP poll. The effort level Xavier showed and the defense they showed in that game coming out of the final, you know, final four minute media timeout. 
they were in that game. I think they might even had a lead at that point. So uh, that performance feels like enough to, at least if you're a Xavier fan and you're looking for some hope, you're looking for something to cling to. You say, if they play like that, which was just within the last week, they'll be in this game and have a chance to win it in the end. And I, I think that's probably what you're hoping for right now. Skinny, the other thing I, I wonder about is, you know, we talk so much about the atmosphere and the environment of this rivalry game. But when you look at Xavier's roster, it's like, okay, yeah, Desmond Claude has seen the game before last year one time. He played it in a little bit. But aside from him, I mean, who else even has an inkling of what they're going to see in this game? Davion McKnight, because he was at Western Kentucky and regional and he maybe heard about it enough. Other than him, does anybody else on this team even know yeah. what they're about to see? Is there a deep walk-on I'm missing that might know? At least at least know? Yeah, yeah. the, the, the walk-ons have been here for a few years, so the walk-ons will know. But I'm not sure if, like, Sasha Shani over, you know, I mean, like, or or Gidis in Lithuania was getting a lot of updates on the Crosstown shootout each year. No, that's a great point um, because I, I do think a lot of times when you've had guys that have been through it, it does matter to them because they played each other in the summertime, um, all those things. They played in that game before. They know the stakes and they know what, what the stakes are for the city. So to your point, you're right. If you don't have a lot of guys that know what it's all about, um, it, it, it maybe doesn't matter to them as much as we think it should. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, when I look at the the matchups, it's like I, I see a scenario and Victor Locken could give Xavier a lot of trouble. I think Dan Skilling's could be a, a matchup problem for Xavier. I think even at the guard position yep. with Day-Day Thomas and Jizzle James and their toughness and athleticism with what we just saw Xavier do against Delaware where they gave up you know 27 points or whatever to a combo guard, those guys would concern me as well. On the Xavier side, it's like, you know, we mentioned Desmond Claude. It's like, I guess you hope Desmond Claude and Quincy Oliveri both play their best game and maybe Trey Green comes off the bench and pops some threes for you or something to give you a, a little bit of a, a lift. I don't even, like, it's hard for me to even figure out what the path for Xavier is. For UC, it feels like there are multiple paths to victory here. Agreed. And that's why, again, I I, I think they're the fair. That's why, to me, um, for UC, it, it, it's, a, it's a needed win because I think it would be a bad loss to be quite frank. Not a bad, not, not in a term of awful, but again, you don't have much on your non-conference resume. This gives you at least a little something. And if not, you come out of Zion Conference with a, with a resume that doesn't tell you anything. And that includes, listen, I know Georgia Tech beat Duke. That's a one-off to me that happens. Um, it's just not going to be a very good non-conference resume. Yeah. Do, I, do you think that this is a huge game for Wes Miller in terms of how he's going to be viewed by the fan base and his sort of tenure here at UC? Or is that being overblown by the Xavier side of things? No, I I I, th I think it, it it doesn't completely define it because the book's still open to be written. Um, but you know, this is one where you are the better team. You are clearly the better team, um, and you have to do something in the non-conference to show something before you go into the Big Twelve, which is going to be just I'm just warning everybody. It's a gauntlet. You better strap it on. I mean, they it is that league is just an absolute nightmare, and it becomes cumulative, just like it kind of did in football. So be ready for that, and you know so. What you have to do in the non-conference is the few opportunities you're going to get to do something for a quad one or quad two, and probably won't even be any quad ones when all is said and done, you better go get it. Yeah, Skinny, one other thing. Uh, well, do you want to make a prediction on, on the shootout, or uh, is your you just yeah. want to stay with your minus four? No, I'll, I'll, I'll make, that's the line I would set. I'll, I'll go UC 78-70. Okay, so you see by eight is Skinny's pick. Um, one other college basketball topic I did want to ask you about before we moved on here. The 
the bye game situation. We've seen Xavier lose two bye games within the last two weeks. Another one of our local teams, Kentucky, lost to UNC Wilmington at Rupp Arena 80-73 to last Saturday. Um, I, I mean, these things have always happened, but in an era where people are so worried about the haves and the have-nots and that delta becoming bigger, it feels like there's as much parity as there's ever been this year, Skinny. What do you make of that? I think to some degree it's, it's multiple things. Um, I think a lot of it does start with want to on defense. I don't know how many kids come into college wanting to play defense, knowing how to play defense. The game has become such a five-out game that it is hard to defend um, without fouling. And, and it is one where when you do have to gap somebody and two have to guard one to keep a guy from going to the rim, there are a lot of good shooters today. It's become such an offensive-oriented game that it literally almost becomes which team makes more buckets on a given night. And those – mid-majors and, and, and teams in, in lesser leagues have players that are capable of doing that. They may not have the physical ability to, to match up with you on the glass or some other things or be able to windmill dunk, but they can certainly do some of those things. And, and you know, on nights when a team, the other the best team or the better team isn't making offensive plays like it's capable or missing some shots, that other team can hang around. I think you've seen that. I, I said it last week with Kentucky. Um, I think it's a really good team. It's got a chance to honestly march to the Final Four, but I even said – they're going to have nights like the St. Joe's game where the other team makes offensive plays and you're going to look up and they're going to lose a weird game 88-82 and go, how did that happen? Because they don't guard. They're really skilled offensively, but they also had some misplays in this game. And so I think that's where UNC Wilmington can come in to rub and pull off that win. I also think the transfer portal and the impact that that's had on how often teams are turning over their rosters and the lack of continuity at the higher levels has made them a little more susceptible to early season losses. And then I also think weirdly, both with the transfer portal, that's made a lot of the higher level teams wait when it comes to recruiting. It's like, well, we don't need three or four freshmen in this year's class because we're going to go to the portal first. And then we'll see, we'll kind of backfill and see what we need from there. Uh, Maybe we'll go international like we saw Xavier do. We'll see more teams do that as well. So I do think, and COVID factored in this as well. There was a couple classes there within the last few years where guys didn't get scouted as much. And there were some back um, backfilled classes because there were super seniors and guys using that COVID year to stick around longer. So you didn't see as many freshmen maybe coming into the, the higher ranks. And what I think that ended up what that ended up causing is some kids slipping through the cracks because we've seen kids coming up from the division two level and playing at the high major level and succeeding. We've seen a lot of Juco kids the last two years coming up and succeeding at the high major level. I think there are a lot of kids that just didn't get the fair look that they normally otherwise would have gotten in in previous years that are now kind of coming up through the ranks. And maybe that's helping some of these lower level teams too, because they ended up getting a gem that Maybe in you know in years past would have ended up at a higher level playing in the Big East or the the Big Twelve or something like that, and now they're they're at UNC Wilmington or they're at Delaware. Yeah, and Rick, back to your point of the portal, uh, you know, and bringing guys in, um, you're having to start from scratch almost every year, teaching what you want done, both offensively and defensively, and sometimes those transfer portal guys listen you look at him on paper and that guy's a 19 and 8 guy at school x well maybe he doesn't play a lick of defense never did and you think i'll coach defense into him and he'll do it for me no he won't he just won't he's 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 a mercenary one-year guy in your system and those guys got want to on one end of the floor maybe not want to on the other end of the floor and so then you're kind of stuck at that point and that's where again the portal giveth and the portal taketh and i think that's where we're at where you're seeing more of these type of games where the buy games are getting away from teams that thought they had easy wins that they're scheduling 
Definitely. All right, let's switch gears here to college football, Skitty. And there's really only one topic for this week in college football. Everyone's talking about it. We're probably last two, so we won't spend too much time here. But I, I do want to get your thoughts. Obviously, the college football playoff was set this past week. You've got number one Michigan going up against number four Alabama and number two Washington going up against number three Texas. Number five FSU will play number six Georgia and the uh, – whatever bowl that is, who cares? But uh, Florida State obviously being the big story, being undefeated, 13-0, winning the ACC championship, and being left out of the college football playoff because their starting quarterback was injured a few weeks back. What were your feelings on Florida State getting left out, Skinny? Feel bad for them because you did what you're supposed to do, which is win every game that's presented to you. But there's also some style points involved. They had a couple of non-style point games and Clearly, the injury to the quarterback does matter, in my opinion. And, and to me, and this is where I think Georgia could make a case as well, to be honest with you, if, if I were to put Florida State up against the following teams on a neutral field, Michigan, Texas, Alabama, Washington, Georgia, Ohio State, would they be favored against any of them? No, and the team they'd have the best chance to be, of fe- being favored against would be Washington. Yeah, and they wouldn't be, in my opinion, favored. No. Um, no. And that's where I go back to, I think think Georgia's got a case. If I put Georgia against any of those teams on a neutral field at the moment, even off the the Alabama loss, they would be favored, in my opinion. Totally agree. I said that last week. I said, I don't know. I mean, Alabama and Georgia, to me, are so clearly two of the top four teams that I don't really even understand why we do this thing where Alabama beats them in the SEC championship game, and so both of them are out now i mean and quite honestly if we're talking about the best four teams i don't think there's any doubt in my mind it's michigan ohio state alabama and georgia those are the four best teams and because they but there's a little interaction between those teams during the season and they beat each other we can't have all four of them in and that's kind of stupid that it's that way anyway and that's why it's great that there'll be a 12 team playoff going forward but skinny i mean the problem i have with all of this is if we're gonna let vegas decide who the best teams are and say here's who would be favored on a neutral field, then stick with that. Like you can't make that argument and then say Alabama's four, Florida State's fifth, and Georgia's six. Because how the hell do you justify Georgia being behind Florida State if that's what we're going with then? And, and I know they probably don't really care who's fifth and sixth after this side, the top four. But I mean, it just, the logic of it is what's so hard. And, and look, I'm not saying there's an easy answer or a right answer here because it is difficult. I'll be honest. I kind of like the idea of trying to put the best games on the field for the college football playoff. I like the idea of we'll have the the best teams getting in if that's how we're going to do it. The problem is it feels like we're picking and choosing when we want to apply that logic. And then other times we want to say, but this team has earned it. Or we ranked this team number one because they had the better strength of schedule or what have you. I mean, I just it, it feels like we're very arbitrary about when we're picking and choosing to use these certain lines of thinking. Yeah, I, I think the committee really hopes every year for the chaos that ensues that allows everything to kind of play itself out where it makes it easy for them. And we've seen that it's not been easy for them. I mean, there are people across the country that don't justify UC getting in the year that they got in. I think they well deserved it. I thought they played their way in. But I got, I get the logic from elsewhere that would look and go, yeah, they beat Notre Dame at Notre Dame. So what? It wasn't a great Notre Dame team after all. But I, I Listen, I thought they earned their way into it, but I understand that that logic from people that would say no. But I think that's why this 14 thing was always a bad idea to begin with. It, it, you should have always made it five, the five power five conference champs and three at larges at a minimum, at a minimum, because at least there's qualifications to get in that if you go in your, your conference championship in the at the time, the power five, you got in. And then we'll find out who the other three are. And I think you could 
you're probably going to you know, number four, five, and six would argue, but you also had a chance, the chance to, based on absolute ground rules of getting into the damn thing. There were no ground rules for this. There was nothing that said, you win your conference championship, you're in. We saw a team that did that and didn't get in. So four was always a bad idea when there was five power conferences. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much farther you want to get into that. I don't, I don't really have a whole lot of other thoughts on how this sets up or the actual games. I mean, I think the Michigan Alabama game is really the, ch- the championship game to me. I don't, that that's Great. the most exciting thing that we're going to get to see out of the three games in the college football playoff. I'll, I'll tell I think. you this though. Yeah, I'll tell you this though. With Quinn Ewers playing the way he's playing at the moment, Texas is damn scary. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Texas is going to be a heavy favorite in that Washington game. Have we seen the spreads yet? Are they out? They got to be out, right? I've not. I'm sure they are out. I have not seen them though. I, I know I got an email from that Josh Barton um, who sends them from a from a betting site, and um, he sent them to me. I just didn't get a chance to look at them. Yeah, I've, I've got them pulled up right here. Um, yeah, it looks like Alabama. Michigan is a one and a half point favorite against Alabama and Texas is a four and a half point favorite over Washington. Ooh, I'd pound Texas in a heartbeat. Ooh. Yeah. That sounds low. So obviously we'll we'll talk about those spreads here in a couple of weeks when we actually make our picks for those games. But uh yeah, I mean I'd, yep. I I I'd I don't know. I don't love this year in terms of how it sets up. Like I said, I would have really liked to see Michigan, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State all play it out right now this year. To me, those are clearly the four best teams. Agreed. Yeah, I know they didn't deserve it, but I, those are, to me, the, the best games that we could have seen. So let's get into our betting picks, which last week you went 2-0. and All we had was the Monday night football game. You had Jacksonville in the over. I had – or you had uh, the Bengals in the over, rather. I had Jacksonville and the Bengals. under. Yeah. yeah, so I went 0-2. Uh, you are 49-43-2. I am 44-48-2. and uh, My teaser got every leg long wrong last week. I had Eagles plus nine, Browns plus nine and a half, and Jags minus two and a half, which is getting quite frankly, that's pretty much just as impressive as getting every leg correct. So kudos to me on that. Um, And you picked Georgia minus five and a half, which also did not hit. It's not a good week for our best bets of the week. That brings us to Sunday, 1 p.m. We've got Colts at Bengals. Colts are a one-point favorite, and the total is 40. A friend of mine said he saw this open up at like three and a half or four, I think before the Monday night game was played. I don't know why they said an early line somebody, but he saw it. Um, and it's obviously changed. I think before kickoff comes, the Bengals will wind up getting bet to the favorite, to be honest with you. I mean, this is one where the Bengals are coming off the Monday night game. And sometimes I will say one of my favorite angles was always betting against the Monday night winner because they're always overvalued because the nation saw Monday night. But I think the Bengals getting back home, um, you know, the faith restored in what Jake Browning provided, um, I think is, is enough for them to, to win this game. So I'll go Bengals 27 Colts 23. So that's the Bengals and the over for me. Bengals and over. I like the over as well. Just barely. I had Colts 24 Bengals 17. So I'm on Colts in the over. Um, and I'm kind of going with your original logic there of, I I'm a little surprised this spread is any bigger than one. I would have, thought more like around three at least for the Colts. I think the Bengals are getting a little bump here because of the Monday night football win. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go with Colts 24 Bengals 17 as my score. That's our only game we have this week to bet on um, skinny. Do you have a best bet for us? 
I'm going back to the four-team teaser in the NFL, which has been good to me. I'm going to take the best okay. six and a half pointer. I'm going to take the I'm going to take the Bengals up to seven and a half. I'm going to take Baltimore down to basically a pick 'em. They're a seven-point favorite at home over the Rams. I'm taking Atlanta from a two and a half point home uh, home favorite to getting four points at home against Tampa Bay. That feels like a field goal game either way. And Atlanta's been been okay at home. Tampa's just been trash on the road. And then I'm going to take um, New Orleans at home. Uh, they're minus five, so down to or actually, will they be getting a point and a half at home against god awful Carolina? They just need to win the game. So uh, that's my four teamer. All right, those have been good to you this year. You've won at least three of them. I think maybe even four now. Uh, but yeah, you've you've had some nice hits on the four team teaser. I've got nothing for you guys. There's no college football games going on. I'm wrapped up in college basketball mode. I'm not going to pick. I mean, I, I just gave you three losers in a row last week. Um, I, I haven't even looked at anything yet to actually give you a legitimate loser this week. I know you probably like just to fade me at this point, but I literally don't even have anything at this point that I've looked at. So it's not even a good fade pick because I haven't thought about what is going to lose. What about yet. what about you could you could have done Army Navy. I don't even I I you know I don't support the troops like that. Um skinny I have one ask skinny anything question for you. It's yes. rate the biggest effing morons in recent choke artist history in Cincinnati. Matt Latos, Vontez Burfick, and Matt Miazga. That's the FC Cincinnati guy. I don't know yeah. how to say yes. his name. I assume it's yes. Miazga. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So so those three? Yeah, you have to rate the uh, biggest effing morons in Cincinnati choke history. The one about Matt Miazga is it feels like it's still such a he said, she said of where did that thing really escalate to and, and how much at fault was he? I mean, you can't go into an official's locker room for sure. So that was that was dumb to begin with. Um, you know, the, the Tez one was stupid, but you can point to Jeremy Hill before that, I guess. And I don't think he was a moron for fumbling. He just it just sucked that he fumbled. Um I'll go Tez because that was just his M.O. of of being dirty. Um, and whether you thought it was a legitimate penalty or not, it was, in my opinion. Um, and to me, he didn't need it. It wasn't necessary. And it did push uh, – it did wind up pushing them into field goal range. And and so, yeah, I'm going I'm going Vontez perfect just because, again, uh, completely unnecessary, and that was his M.O. Where does Latos fit in? I don't know. Was he a moron for giving up a grand slam, or was he just a bad pitcher that day? No, I think people just think he's a moron and a bad person in general, so they're factoring oh, in the no. fact that he choked us well into that. Yeah, I, I thought it was maybe. I thought it was maybe for that moment. No, I'm go, I'm going Tez. Tez was a dirty, dirty football player. I, nah. All you need to know about him is the is the first practice, the, the first practice that Giovanni Bernard had coming off major knee surgery, and in a non-con. Well, it was a thud drill where you can wrap him up and literally thud. He went right at his knee. To the point where Kyle Kasky, the running backs coach, without anything on, went to fight Vontez Burke, which isn't probably a very smart move. But kudos to him for taking up for his guy because it was one of the dirtiest things I've ever witnessed. I watch Kyle Kasky on YouTube all the time, the uh, chatterbox clicker. And he used to be fighting Vontez Burfecht, and now he's breaking down film, which is probably healthier, I would assume, for, for him, if nothing else. Yes, probably, uh, probably smarter. Yeah. Skinny, that's all we got in terms of asking anything. Like I said, you know, a show or two ago, if you guys do, if you want more substance to this segment, please send in your questions. We'll be sure to answer them, but been a little light the last few weeks. So that's where we're at. Yeah. I know we've hopped. Yeah. I know we've hopped around podcast days too. So that probably hasn't helped. We will try to, um, as we move forward here, I think we'll probably get into a little bit 
the better groove of what day we'll drop this podcast. We've done some late Tuesday nights. We've done some Wednesdays. We've done a handful of Thursdays. We used to be primarily Thursdays, but because of both of our schedules at the moment, we're trying to trying to fit this in when we can best fit it in. So I, I know that probably hasn't helped. So we'll try to uh, we'll try to give you a little bit more of a heads up on when we're going to drop the podcast. But uh, yeah, please keep the questions coming because we really enjoy that segment of the show. For Rick Roaring, I'm Richard Skinner. Thanks for being with us. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly phone three edition presented by Blake, the attorney major.